Hi there. Welcome to First Chapter Fridays with ACL, a podcast from the Augusta County Library. If you're looking for a new read, this is the place for you. Each Friday, one of the Augusta County librarians will read the first chapter of a favorite book in different genres and age ranges, including middle grade books for ages 8 to 12, YA books for teens, and fiction and nonfiction for adults. These might be titles you haven't had the chance to discover yet, and all of the titles we read will be available through your local public libraries. This week's first chapter is the beginning of a series of historical spy fiction set in 1940s England. In Mr. Churchill's Secretary by Susan Alia McNeil, Winston Churchill has just been sworn in, war rages across the channel, and the threat of a blitz looms larger by the day. But none of this deters Maggie Hope. She graduated at the top of her college class and possesses all the skills of the finest minds in British intelligence, but her gender qualifies her only to be the newest typist at number 10 Downing Street. Her indefatigable spirit and remarkable gifts for code-breaking, though, rival those of even the highest men in government, and Maggie finds that working for the Prime Minister affords her a level of clearance she could never have imagined, and opportunities she will not let pass. In troubled, deadly times, with air raid sirens sending multitudes underground, access to the war rooms also exposes Maggie to the machinations of a menacing faction determined to do whatever it takes to change the course of history. Ensnared in a web of spies, murder, and intrigue, Maggie must work quickly to balance her duty to king and country with her chances for survival. And when she unravels a mystery that points toward her own family's hidden secrets, she'll discover that her quick wits are all that stand between an assassin's murderous plan and Churchill himself. For fans of Jacqueline Winspear, Laurie R. King, and Anne Perry, Mr. Churchill's secretary captures the drama of an era of unprecedented challenge and the greatness that rose to meet it. This book is for adults, so there is some language and content suitable for more mature readers and listeners. We hope you enjoy. Chapter 1 I would say to the House, as I've said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering, intoned Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill to the House of Commons and the British nation in his first speech as the new Prime Minister. There must have been complete silence in the House, although there was a burst of static over the airwaves as Maggie leaned forward to listen to the BBC on the wireless. She and Paige sat at the kitchen table and clasped hands, listening to the address. Charlotte, better known as Chuck, entered the kitchen quietly and leaned against the doorframe. You ask, what is our policy? I can say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. Chuck nodded her acknowledgement of both girls. Together they all listened to the speech's conclusion in tense silence. 
but I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all, and I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. The three girls were perfectly still and silent for a moment as the words gravity washed over them. Well, at least it's the truth, Maggie said, pushing back a stray lock of red hair. He didn't try to pretend everything's all right and fob us off with an easy comfort and lies. I just don't know, Chuck said to both girls as a tinny version of God Save the King played, and she walked over to click off the wireless. Look what happened in Poland. Look what's happening in Belgium and Holland and France, Page said. Maybe Ambassador Kennedy was right. He said Hitler doesn't want England. And if we just... Chuck gave a snort. Oh, right. And then they'll stop? You really believe that? This is a different kind of war, Maggie said. A people's war. It's not just soldiers on the front line. It's civilians. We are the new front line. As she said the words, her chest constricted a bit. It was true. England might still be in the Boer War, where nothing dangerous was really happening. But things were about to change. Nazis had invaded most of Europe and were undoubtedly moving toward England. Would troops try to invade by sea or parachute down from the sky? Either way, the scenario was grim. Yeah, said Chuck, we're as likely to be bombed here in our own home as the soldiers over in France. Stop it, Paige said, covering her ears. Just stop. Chuck frowned and pulled her bottle green cardigan sweater around her, rather like a general settling his uniform before going once more unto the breach. Tea, she stated in her deep, booming voice, deliberately changing the subject. We all need tea. There will be no blood, toil, tears, or sweat until I have some goddamn tea. That was Chuck, practical and pragmatic, more handsome than beautiful, with rich chestnut brown hair, strong features, and thick black eyelashes. Chuck McCaffrey had worked for U.S. Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, along with Paige Kelly, before the war had started. Maggie Hope had come to London for another reason altogether, to sell her late grandmother's great, leaking, creaking pile of a Victorian house. But when Britain declared war and Joseph Kennedy began being quoted in papers spouting pro-Nazi sentiments, both Paige and Chuck both quit their jobs with the ambassador and lost their embassy housing. Maggie, admiring their resolve, invited them to move in, and they gratefully acquiesced. Paige and Maggie had met years before either had come to London at Wellesley College, an all-women's school in Massachusetts. Paige was a rich debutante from Virginia with perfect waves of glistening golden hair and a heart-shaped face, and Maggie, a red-haired and pale faculty brat far more interested in fractions than fashions, but they'd become fast friends nonetheless. Finding each other in London had been pure serendipity. Becoming housemates made a pleasure of a financial necessity. The flatmate's rent, along with Maggie's work privately tutoring students in math, allowed her to stay in London. Chuck made her way toward the copper kettle on the stove, but stopped short at the state of the sink, piled high with dirty dishes. Jesus H. Christ! Maggie shrugged. The twins... The twins in question were Annabelle and Clarabelle Wiggett, two pixie-like young blondes who also lived in the house, known as much for their thick Norwich accents and incessant giggling as for the catastrophic messes they left. Chuck referred to them, not necessarily unkindly, as the Dingbells, the Dumbbells, and the Hells Bells. Chuck made a low growl in her throat. Off with their heads, she muttered, rolling up her sleeves and taking up a dish rag. The telephone rang, and Paige jumped to get it. Hello, she cooed, as if expecting to hear from one of her numerous boyfriends. Then, oh yes, David, she's here. David was David Green, one of Maggie's good friends, who worked as a private secretary to Winston Churchill. 
Maggie took the heavy black bait light receiver and sat down at the kitchen table, running her fingers over the nicks and the scars in the wood. It's just that that girl's gone missing, David said, his voice solemn. Actually, it's a bit more serious than that. But the thing is, we need a replacement. Yesterday. Wasn't she murdered a few days ago, Maggie asked? Mugged for a few pounds? I saw something in the Times about it, and in Pimlico, too. Paige and Chuck both turned, listening. Look, it's a terrible situation, Magster, but there's still a war on and work to be done. Now more than ever, we need to fill the position. Paige and I have already decided we're going to be drivers, the call of the open road and all that. Maggie, my dear, I know you can take dictation and type well, and that's what's needed right now. And please let me emphasize the right now bit. Maggie leaned back in the chair. She could see where this was going. Well, then why don't you do it? I'm already a private secretary, research and that sort of thing. Besides, I don't, well, Maggie raised an eyebrow. You mean you don't type? Not very fast, I'm afraid, David said. But you can, and quickly too, and that's what's needed. Then we need you. Maggie was silent. Dishes done, Chuck had turned back to her tea, the mug dwarfed by her large, capable hands. Paige busied herself with the newspaper. Merciful Zeus, woman, David exclaimed over the crackling line. It's a chance to work on the front lines. You'd be doing something important, making a difference. The knowledge that he was right stung. She could make a difference, but not in the way she wanted, with her mathematic capabilities. As a typist, working for Mr. Churchill would be one of the hardest and most challenging jobs you can do, and vital as well. But it's up to you, of course. I can't say it's going to be anything but difficult. But if you're interested, I can make it happen. We've already started the paperwork, proving you're a British citizen in good standing, despite your dreadful accent. Maggie smiled in spite of herself. David loved to mock her American accent. Would there be any chance of my being involved with the research and writing end of things? After all, with my degree, I could be of more help, especially with things like Q-theory, allocating resources, information theory, code, and cipher-breaking. He sighed. I'm sorry, Maggie, but they're only hiring men for those jobs. I understand your frustration. Maggie had already tried for a private secretary job, a position traditionally held by young Oxbridge men from upper-class families. Despite being more than qualified, she'd been turned down. No, David, you don't. It wasn't his fault, but still, the truth hurt. She could type and file, while young men her age, like David, could do more. Research, reports, writing. It just wasn't fair. And the knowledge made her want to throw and break things. Immature, she knew, but honest. I'd rather drive or work in a factory making tanks. Maggie, why? Look, you of all people should know why. David, after all, wouldn't be there either if they knew everything about him. You don't get to judge me. I'm sorry, "'You're sorry? Sorry?' she said, her voice rising in pitch. In the kitchen, the girls all pretended to be very, very busy with what they were doing. "'Perfect. You're sorry. But it doesn't change anything.' Her pronunciation became more distinct. "'It doesn't change that when I interviewed for the private secretary job, I was more than qualified. It doesn't change that Dickie Snodgrass was a condescending ass to me. It doesn't change that John sees me as a mere girl incapable of anything besides typing and getting married and having babies. And it doesn't change that they hired that cross-eyed lug Conrad Simpson, a mouth breather who probably still has to sound words out and count on his fingers, all because his daddy has a fancy title and he has a, a, a penis. There was a silence on the other end, and then the line crackled. In the kitchen, the girls looked at each other in shock. 
And the fact that you're absolutely right, I know, doesn't make it any better, David said. All right, then, Maggie said, slightly calmer now that she'd gotten that off her chest. Then she said, what about Paige? Paige looked up from the paper. Fifth column treachery was the headline. What about Paige? She asked. Maggie waved her hands and shushed her. Paige is American. Only Commonwealth citizens are allowed, he said. And Chuck? Chuck was still bent over the tea, but her back tensed. Chuck's training to be a nurse, and she'll be more than needed soon, David said. Besides, Ireland's not the Commonwealth, you know. Things are still a little iffy between England and Ireland, if you know what I mean. Ah, Maggie said. Of course. Chuck was Irish, and with all of the violent history between England and Ireland, as well as the recent IRA bombings in London, Maggie could see why an Irish citizen at number 10 wouldn't be considered, let alone approved. Maggie took a deep breath. Despite her frustration at the system in place, she knew it was time for her to give up her pride and do what needed to be done. Here's something I can do for the war effort, she thought. Something I can do and do well. There's a need and I can fill it. It was as simple as that. And in wartime, it was all that mattered. All right, then, she said with a dramatic sigh. Yes, I'll do it. Fine. You've got yourself a secretary. Good girl. I had a feeling you'd come through. Well, we'll see you at number 10 tomorrow morning, then. Eight sharp. There's a lot of work to be done. I know. I'll be there. And then she added, thank you, David. You can count on me. Michael Murphy left his flat in Soho early, forgoing an umbrella even though the skies promised worse weather. He paused at the curb while he buttoned his old Macintosh against the morning chill, tucking a small, worn leather suitcase tightly beneath his feet. Around him was a regular Tuesday morning in London, traffic getting heavier, a siren wailing, shops and cafes opening, people walking quickly on the sidewalks or waiting patiently in queues for red double-decker buses. A few drab sparrows picked to crumbs, and the damp air was cut by car exhaust. Satisfied he'd never seen any of the faces in the crowd before, he set off for Piccadilly Circus. The statue of Eros with his bow had been removed for safekeeping, and the Shaftesbury Fountain was boarded up with wide wooden planks. The area, edged by the London Pavilion and the Criterion, was already mobbed with RAF pilots on leave, wrens in brown uniforms and bright lipstick, and young boys shouting and selling newspapers. They were overlooked by huge billboards. Guinness is good for you. Bovril Schweppes tonic water. For your throat's sake, smoke Craven A. And just in case one could ever forget the war, it might be you. Caring for evacuees is a national service. Murphy walked down the steep flight of steps to the Piccadilly Circus underground station, bought his ticket, and then descended further into the bowels of the tube. As he sank lower and lower into the earth, the cool air smelled of exhaust, rotting rubbish, and stale sweat. The train arrived with a loud rumble, and he pushed his way in with the others. Businessmen in rumpled suits and felt hats with newspapers in hand, a few soldiers, a nurse with a white-winged hat. He transferred from the Piccadilly line to the northern, noticing a particularly beautiful young woman with a dove-gray pillbox hat and red lipstick, somehow disconcerting so early in the morning. He gave the woman a grin and tipped his hat. She blushed and dropped her eyes. He remained standing on the train, then got off with a crowd of passengers as the doors slid open at Euston Station. Instinctively, he reached into his coat and felt for the butt of his pistol. It was there, hard and reassuring. He walked along with the rest of the crowd, hanging back just slightly, until most had proceeded up the staircase, leaving a momentary lull before the next train arrived. In one smooth, practiced move, he reached into the case and released a catch, activating the bomb inside. Then, in another quick motion, he dropped it in one of the gaping rubbish bins. 
Walking briskly now, he headed up the stairs. There was a man with a fleshy, florid face playing the sailor's hornpipe on a slightly out-of-tune violin. Murphy threw a few coins into the open case, pausing to wink at the woman in the gray hat who'd stopped to listen. She blushed again. Continuing through a turnstile, he jogged up another steeper set of stairs and then into the open air. He walked a few blocks and spotted a cafe across the street. He went in and took a seat by the large plate-glass windows, the dark wood chair scraping over the black and red tile floor. Then he looked up at the waitress and ordered a pot of tea. Murphy was enjoying his first sip when the ground shook slightly and the battered wooden tables and chipped flowered china dishes trembled for just an instant. There was an uneasy silence as the other patrons stiffened, wondering what had happened, waiting. The crowd began murmuring, some rising to see what the outside commotion was about. A baby began to cry and his mother held him tightly against her. Then people, some battered and bloody, faces contorted with shock, began to walk past the cafe's window. And they're the lucky ones, he thought. The man caught sight of the young woman in the gray hat, the one he'd favored with a wink. It was askew, and her lipstick had smeared. A gash on her face wept blood, dripping dark and red onto the light gray of her suit. She walked past the window of the cafe, unseeing. From a distance, the wail of sirens could be heard, growing louder as they approached. Murphy left a few coins on the table for his tea, and then went out into the throng, savoring the confusion and chaos he had caused. You can see what happens next with Maggie Hope in print or as an ebook and an e-audiobook on Libby. The next book in the series is Princess Elizabeth Spy and is also available in various formats throughout the libraries. Next week, tune in for Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women by Kate Moore, a non-fiction dive into dangerous working conditions for women during World War I and a groundbreaking battle for workers' rights. Thanks for tuning in to First Chapter Fridays with ACL. See you next week.